the first thing I think you really have to do is you have to know who your customer is and understand them. And that was a big revelation for me. And it was also a major revelation for the company in that the the concept of marketing was really never one that was embraced by my predecessors. They were really great merchants, and they could pick wonderful product, and they knew how to make it. But that was kind of the end of their their contribution. They they really weren't concerned about that because they knew that the product they were making was unparalleled and it was going to get sold. But things started to get a little different back in the 70s and 80s, and you could just tell that the customer was much they, the customer was much more informed, and today that I mean it's even light years different than what it was in the seventies and eighties, and so I think that that's number one. You got to really understand your customer. Take a look at what happened to, to Budweiser beer mm-hmm. just what sixty days ago. Mm-hmm. They lost thirty percent of their business overnight because of some. Dumbass that didn't understand their customer. Yeah. And I mean, it's just crazy. If you don't know who you're selling to and who you want to attract, you can't stay in business. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry-leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off-market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract-to-close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing, And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be here. Thanks. I thought it would be good to start with a little bit of background of your family coming to America and how the Zales started over here. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story to me. And, and the whole story, I believe, is really the, the American dream when you get right down to it, if you take it from start to finish. My father's uncle was a guy by the name of Sam Kruger. And they were all born in a little village called Jova, which is now in Belarus. It was in Poland at the time. I'm going back to the turn of the century, 1900. Okay. My father was born in 1901, and Uncle Sam, his mother's brother, was the first in the family to leave what is now Belarus and go come to New York. And fortunately, Uncle Sam had a little bit of training as a watchmaker, and he got to New York, and he got some kind of job and was able to send for his wife and his daughter and made a few bucks, worked a little longer, and then sent for his brother-in-law, who was my grandfather. And my grandfather came to America, to New York, and he worked for a year or so and then sent for his wife, Mm -mm. who would be my grandmother. 
and we were just talking about how having a, a young woman, she was probably in her early 20s, and she had two little boys, age three and five or so. And she lived in this little village for a year or two, as long as it took for him to, to make the money to, to get him to New York. And what struggles she must have gone through being isolated there and no communications, of course. And I can imagine her getting a knock on the door at midnight or something saying, Libby, it's time to go to New York. And she probably didn't have any idea where New York was. And she goes and they pay off crossing guards on an ox cart because there's no no buses for sure. Hmm. And they finally get to, I think it was Rotterdam, and take the ship. Took three weeks in steerage for them to get to New York. And finally she gets there. And Uncle Sam puts them all up. And then Uncle Sam fortunately decides that the best place for him to get a job is where the railroads have a big depot because all of the track had to be switched manually. And these guys would ride these little Johnny carts out to, you've seen them in the last time I looked at Blazing Saddles. I had a picture of one of those. (laughs) The two guys pumping on either side. (laughs) And they'd go out to the track and they would have to have a watch that kept good time and know exactly when to switch those tracks. So Uncle Sam said, well, that's where I, I can get a good job because they need good watches. And he goes to Fort Worth. And then he sends for the family one, two, three at a time again. And they all come to Fort Worth, including my father and his family. His, Blake's great-grandfather, his brother, Bill. And the, they come to Fort Worth. My grandfather was not much of a breadwinner. He was a very, very orthodox Jew, and he spent most of his time at the synagogue. And But he was a house painter and a paper hanger. When he would be able to get a job, well, he would take my dad and my Uncle Bill with him on the job and let them help him some. And then ultimately, well, unfortunately, my dad had to drop out of school in the sixth grade because in the seventh grade, you had to buy your own books Mm. and they just didn't have the money for that. And then they discovered oil out in West Texas and the railroads decided to build a depot in Wichita Falls. So that's where they would deliver all the pipe and supplies for the construction projects. And Uncle Sam said, well, if that's going to be a new boom town, I'm going to go there and open a jewelry store. And he did. He went to Wichita Falls, and he opened a jewelry store, and he carried very, very fine products, Patek Philippe watches and mm. sterling silver flatware and that kind of stuff. And after about four or five years of that, getting up to, the, say, the mid-1915s or so, well, he sent for my father, who was from was living in Fort Worth at the time, to come to Wichita Falls and help him. And my dad started learning the jewelry business from his uncle Sam. And then he just, my dad decided in about 1921 or so that he wanted to own his own store. And he picked Graham, Texas as the site for his first store. And he goes to Graham and he makes a deal for a jewelry counter in a drugstore in Graham. And for his rent, well, he was the janitor in the drugstore. 
Hmm. And he would clean it up at night and so forth. And I think he slept above the, the drugstore too. I'm not sure. At any rate, so after a month or two, well, the banker in Graham comes to the store owner, the drugstore owner, and tells them that the Ku Klux Klan is getting active. There are no blacks in Graham, and there's only one Jew, and that's M.B., and they thought it was time for him to get out of town if Mm -hmm. he wanted to to be safe. And so my dad opened the store for like a month or two, and then he got out of there and went back to Wichita Falls. At the time, Uncle Sam in Wichita Falls was doing a very nice business and wanted to get a new location for his jewelry store. And so he sold his existing location to my dad for stock in what became Zale Corporation. The existence of credit was absolutely a big void. There was no such thing as consumer credit now in 1923-24. As a matter of fact, I was speaking down at A&M not too long ago, and there was a class for about 50 finance students. And I said, how many of you in here have a credit card? And of course, every hand went up. I said, well, picture yourself in 1924. How many of you would have a credit card? And of course, no hands went up because there was no such thing as credit. But my dad looked and he said that his uncle Sam was selling to the doctors and the lawyers and the bankers and so forth. And he was selling all this fine product. And he said, you know, these guys that are out there drilling the oil wells and are making a living, he said, I trust them to pay me. And he decided he would open up a credit jewelry store and he would sell nice jewelry at a fair price to the average guy and let them pay $2 down and $2 a week. And it was a major, major hit. The store did extraordinarily well. And customers would come in and and buy, and they would buy on credit, and then they would come in every week and make a payment. And I remember working in the stores, taking those payments as a a little guy. And as I said, that that store was a a big hit, and they decided that they would want to do a second store. And the Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was another oil town, where they were had a very similar clientele. And so they moved to Tulsa as a second store. And then the third store they did was Oklahoma City and so forth. And the fourth store was Amarillo. And then 1929 came around and the market crashed and the Great Depression was beginning. And they survived the Depression by keeping all of the cash in cigar boxes in their in their safes they got wind of the banks being going to close and kept the cash they they took all their money out of the banks and then just eked it through barely making a living taking only what they needed through the depression and then in the middle 1930s as things started to get better well, they began looking for another location or two. And by the time World War II came around, they had about eight or nine stores. Then during the war, well, there were several major events. Number one, 
they had a policy that they would never go up on their prices, uh, even though there were shortages. My dad had a policy. He said that these people who are buying from me now are going to be my customers after the war, and we're not going to take advantage of them. We're going to see to it that they want to come back and do business with us then. He had a very, very strict policy that they wouldn't change their prices, even though there was black market activities and so forth. He had a lot of issues with the banks. The banks in the, during the Depression were obviously very, very difficult to do business with. And he was trying to get a loan. I think he needed $10,000. And I'm, I'm going back to the early 30s. And none of the banks in Wichita Falls would, would give him a loan. And we had a store in Oklahoma City. My Uncle Bill was running that store, and we had a relationship with a bank there. I've read where my dad got in a car, and he went to Oklahoma City, and he made a plea. And while he was sitting there, the banker wrote out a deposit slip for $10,000, <laughs> took out the $400 of interest payments or were due, and gave my dad a deposit slip, and he was in absolute shock. And I know we kept a deposit in a, in a, <laughs> a relationship with that bank until I left the company in 1986. How am I doing? So You're doing amazing. I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions in there. You guys kind of pioneered credit. Yes. And you didn't raise prices during the war. Yep. And you kept a relationship with a bank for as long as you could. So my question really is, who in the family understood the power of relationships and like understanding the customer? Because as I, what I'm hearing now is somebody that deeply understands their customer, jewelry is almost the next thing in line. I, I would have to say it was it was MB and Bill, the two the two brothers. MB perhaps more so than Bill. MB was a very, very well-read, self-educated guy. He was very dedicated to the business. He had seen poverty in excessive uh, part of his early life and was determined that he was never going to be in debt. He was not going to be in to the banks or anybody else, and that they were going to run their business in a very conservative way. And he also, I think, understood his customer from the standpoint of the desires of women, especially, to have nice things. And he wanted to sell it to them at a, at a popular price. How do you take the atmosphere in, in that time, and if you look at just kind of where we are today in the world, has anything changed? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> has anything changed? Yeah, I'm telling you, it has really changed a lot. And, and I think that the basic communications that we have today is the major contributor to that. Okay. You know, I, I think about when I was a kid in Wichita Falls, during World War II, if we wanted to know what was going on in the war, well, there was a Saturday movie tone newsreel that we could go to the 
have to go to the, we called it the picture show at the time. We'd go to the movie house and they would show us a newsreel and we'd find out the Battle of Leyte Gulf or something. And it was six weeks afterwards. And I remember when the Vietnam War was on and we had television. And that war was in our living room every day. And the, the difference was just extraordinary. The, the reaction of the public between those two events was just dramatic because we knew so much more and we saw it every day and it was presented to us. It was part of our life, really. So I, I think the communications that we have are really very, very significant. The world has gotten a lot smaller. Yep. All right. I want to go back to you entering the business. But before that, I think it would be important. Your dad started it or was a co-founder. The apple comes from the tree. Can you describe your relationship with your dad and maybe how he influenced you or the things in y'all's relationship that made you want to go work with him or just describe the setting? Yeah. When I was a little kid, the store was as much our home as our place on Avondale Street in Wichita Falls. And I remember during the summer, my dad always had a convertible, and he'd take us for ice cream cones at night. But we would always drive by the store, and we used to joke with him that the store didn't move while, while he was gone. You know, he closed at 6 o'clock at night, and we'd go by there at 8.30 to make sure it was still there. <laughs> and so it was just part of our life and i recall that frequently i would take the school bus to downtown wichita falls and go to the store for an hour or two and then ride home with my dad and when i was about seven or eight years old i was at the store and he said why don't you help us with the watches so I said, okay, what do we do? Now, this was back, so I'm seven years old, it's 1940. And the watch industry didn't have near the quality control that you find today. And so we would buy these popular priced watches, and they would come in, and we'd, you'd have to wind them. They were all spring-wound. There's no such thing as an electronic watch or an automatic watch, for that matter. And they were all spring-wound. And... We would wind them and we would set them for the time and then have to come in the next day, 24 hours later. And if that weren't, wasn't keeping proper time, you'd give it to the watchmaker and there was a little adjustment factor in there and the watchmaker would adjust it and so forth. Well, that, and my dad said to me, he says, you know, I can hire a monkey to wind watches, but I, what, what I want you to do is after you wind the watch, I want you to turn it over and I want you to look at the price tag on the back. And this watch is $20 and this one is $35. And I want you to figure out why those watches are different prices, what, what it's all about them. And, of course, you couldn't just wind the watch and look at it. You had to then clean it, take your fingerprints off of it, put it back in the, the showcase. The other aspect of that that was very, very interesting and important in retrospect is that if you didn't come in and wind them every day, they stopped. Mm. And then you have to rewind them and reset them the next time you come in. So, And that was a big pain in the neck. So you had to come in every day and wind those darn watches. 
And that was a great lesson for me. And then, interestingly enough, when World War II broke out, well, there's a big Air Force base in Wichita Falls. It's still there, Shepard Air Force Base. And we started getting in complex watches, chronographs and timers and things of that nature for the pilots and the navigators and so forth at Shepard Air Force Base. And I was became almost the watch expert in the store, and I was 10 years old. And so these soldiers and airmen would come in, and they'd want to buy this watch. And if I was there, well, the salesman would call me over to explain it to them, which was really kind of goofy, I guess, at the time. But it was just one of the things that I had done, and it was my introduction, and I loved it. I mean, it, it was it was a responsibility for a little kid, and it it gave me something to do that I really thought was worthwhile doing, and that was my initial exposure. And so, going to the store was just part of my life. Most kids, when they were little, would go off to camp in the summer. Well, we'd do a little camping stuff around Wichita Falls, but we would go to the store, and we would help out in the store. And ultimately, we started going to, to camp and so forth. Of course, I guess we got to be too big and a pain in the neck to my folks. <laughs> but uh, that was my initial exposure. And then I recall when I was about 14 years old, we had a New York office. And the lady who was in charge of the New York office called my father in the summer, and she said, I can't get a delivery boy because the parents found out that our offices weren't air-conditioned, so this is 1943, 46 probably. And so my dad said, well, I've got a delivery boy for you for the summer. He doesn't know if it's hot or cold, and he sent me to New York. And I lived in New York at this, that summer at the YMHA, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue. as a little kid, and my uncle lived in New York, and so I used to have dinner with him at night, but I remember I'd take the bus down Lexington Avenue as a 15-year-old and go to work at this at the office in New York, and they would give me little packages to deliver to various jewelers throughout the city, and then I'd go pick them up and so forth. And so I was the the runner, I guess, in in New York, and the store and the business was just always a part of my life. In 1951, developed the first profit-sharing plans were developed by the Internal Revenue Service, and we adopted one at Zell Corporation. And I remember that, so in 1951, I was 18 years old, I set up all of the record-keeping for the profit-sharing plan because it was just something to do. I remember we had ledger cards for every employee, and each store was a separate corporation. It was a big deal, but I had to figure out all this stuff. And I kept all the books for the profit sharing plan. I'd go in, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal in retrospect, but it, it was just part of my upbringing. When I got to college and I, I took accounting, what else are you guys going to give me? You know, because I already already been doing this stuff, you know? and so it was really kind of simple for me when when I went off to school. Was your dad easy on you? What was my daddy? What was he easy on you? Oh God, no. 
No way. I mean, he he was I, he was not he was not mean for certain, but he was he was the kind of person that you just never wanted to disappoint. We were never spanked as kids, but they you know they put so much confidence in me and my brother and and the rest of us that we would never want to disappoint them. And so it, it was it was kind of a unique bringing up. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's kind of move to when you, obviously you grew up in the business. It was in your blood. You know, we kind of skipped to, we had a couple offices down in the South and all of a sudden we had a New York office. Yeah. But when did the business start becoming this big business that was growing? I mean, most people at that time probably had a shop or two. Y'all, I mean, the note I have here was Zales was the first company to bring jewelry to the masses. How yeah. did, when did that really start that this is something that's going to become a big business? It started after World War II. I recall that, well, let me, let's go to, to 1950-ish. Okay. Uh, I would say that we had about 20 stores in 1950. And I remember when, when I went off to college in 1951, there were about 23, 24 stores because I was setting up this profit-sharing plan. And while I was gone, the company probably added 20-some-odd stores. Because Barbara Zale and I got married in 1954, and we had 40 stores. And, of course, she took credit for the fact when we had 1,600 that the company had done so well since I married her. <laughs> <laughs> she, by the way, she was a Fort Worth girl. And, but I think the, the real development of, of a bigger chain started in the middle, early 1950s. And after this profit-sharing plan, and the stores were all separately incorporated, and the managers each owned about 20% of their store, mm. that we had a consolidation in the middle 50s. And we reorganized the capital structure, and we gave the store managers stock in a major company, and we merged all of those corporations together. And then in 1957, we had a moral, a moral obligation to these managers that when they quit or died or whatever, that we would buy their stock back. And that started to become a major capital call, so to speak. So we determined that the best thing to do was to go public. I say we. I didn't have anything to do with that. I was about 23 years old. So 24. And when I say that they put so much confidence in it, I'll recall this, that when they decided, they being my uncles and my father, that they were going to go public, they finally got an, an underwriter. They couldn't get one in New York, so they got a local underwriter in Dallas called Epler, Guerin, and Turner. And we had to have an audit which we had never had a, an audit by a major accounting firm. And so they turned that over to me. And I'm 24 years old. 
I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I don't mind telling you. But once again, they'd given me this task, and there's no way I was going to say I can't do it or that I can't, can't perform. And so I scooted around, and I found out what to do, talked to a couple of lawyer friends of mine who happened to know something about the securities business. And we hired a public accounting firm, Touche, Niven, Bailey, and Smart, and we had a, an audit. And then I remember I had to work with the lawyers to do a prospectus. And I knew absolutely nothing about a prospectus. <laughs> but we had a great law firm. It's the old Sam Winstead law firm. It's called Winstead and something else now. Yeah. It's a big firm. And I'll never forget they had a securities lawyer there, a guy by the name of Don Fitch. And Don Fitch lost a leg in some time. And our offices were not too far from their offices. <laughs> and he'd call me about four o'clock in the afternoon and he'd say, All right, you need to come over here and we're gonna go through this part of the prospectus and so forth. He says, And then we'll stay and have a traffic thinner. So I said, <laughs> Okay, what's what's that? Of course, it meant we were going to go upstairs and have a drink. Afterwards. Let, let, let the five o'clock traffic go down. But I was very, very fortunate in that I, I was surrounded by people who really cared. And I guess for whatever reason, they were a major help to me. And they they just were very dedicated to making sure we did it right. And I was very fortunate to be there at that time. Was there a point in the, the journey where Diamond started taking the lead as the main product being sold out of Zales? We started with kind of watches and things like that, but the Zales we know today or that became more prominent was Diamonds. Was there a reason why that shift took, a, yeah, took place? Yeah, that shift was, was taking place before World War II. Okay. And because well, diamonds are a girl's best friend, and it was a very— And they're popular. forever. Yeah, diamonds are forever, exactly. And by the way, there's enormous amount of disruption in the diamond industry today. And I've said that, you know, if I was 40 years younger, I'd be back in it in a heartbeat. Really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, there, there's got to be so much opportunity in that that it's just—it's fabulous. And we can talk about that if you want to. Okay. But at any rate, a diamond jewelry was was always our primary con merchandising category, and uh, that was the reason we uh, had that office in New York was to help us make diamond jewelry and so forth. And that's also when we became vertically integrated. It was the beginning of our vertical integration, and we ultimately, you know, were manufacturers of our own jewelry to a very great extent. And when the company got started, it was it had to be a very promotional kind of activity to attract customers. And my first job when I graduated college, I, I, I'll never forget this. I, I walked in, I graduated on, in summer school in 1954. And I walked, I'd been working at the office and I walked in on Monday morning and I went to my uncle, who was a guy by the name of Ben Lipschey who was president of the company, or was going to be president at that time. And I said, I'm ready to go to work full time. And he said, okay. He said, he turns around 
pulls out a set of plans for a store, and he says, we just signed a lease for a store in Tyler, Texas. I remember this end of August. And he says, we have to have it open before Thanksgiving. Go build it. <laughs> now, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, I, honest to God, I did not. And this is a theme. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah there's a major theme throughout this whole thing. And he gave me the plans. And he says, go build the store. And I said, yes, sir. And I walked out of his office saying, now, what do I do next? You know, But we had a guy in the company who had built stores before. So I went and talked to him and we figured it out. And I remember when we were, when I started to merchandise that store, that we had major categories of dishes and wear and appliances for the kitchen and so forth, along with the jewelry. Mm. And we would run big ads for these appliances and dishes and so forth. You get 40 sets of dishware and we throw in a Dormeyer mixer and so forth so you come in and open an account and that continued on for a good long while and I became president in 1971 and I remember one of the, the best work I always did was when I got out of the office and went to the stores I was walking down the mall in Salt Lake City Utah and I saw our store in a corner location, beautiful store. And the first thing I saw when I got there was a West Bend percolator. And I came back to Dallas and I told the powers that be, I said, we can't do that anymore. We're going to be the diamond store. We're going to be jewelry only. And all of that category of goods was a pretty good size piece of our total revenue, total volume, sales volume. And I got the crew together and I told them that we weren't going to sell that anymore. And I said, we'll adopt a policy. If it has an electrical cord on it, we're not selling it. And we're not selling all this other stuff. And I remember one of our guys said, I was going to be the Citizens Band king of the world. I had a promotion for Citizen Band Radio. I said, you're going to have to be the jewelry king of the world instead. <laughs> and so we took all that stuff out and, and began to really concentrate on being only a jewelry company. That was in 1971. The lesson that I'm hearing, and, and I think it it's a lesson that stands the test of time, what did going all in and focusing on one thing really do for the business? Well, number one, I, th I think that it it did it gave the customer confidence in the fact that they could buy jewelry from us and knowing that they were going to get a good value, that we were specialists, we were concentrating on that. The other thing that I insisted upon, and, and this was back in 1971 also, the first day I became president of the company, we had about 300 stores, and I sent out a note to every store, and I said, I want a customer, I want a, a copy of every unresolved customer complaint when you close the store at night. So if you have a customer complaint that is not resolved, I want it. And I put together four or five people, and we started getting the first, I remember the first day I got about 
40 or 50 customer complaints. And I got people to, on the telephones, got to cut, we called the customers, and we said, what can we do to make you happy? You know, we're going to give you your money back. We can give you a new piece of goods. We can fix what you've got. Whatever it is, we want to do it. And so I, I set a, a separate line on their profit and loss statement for resolving customer complaints. And after about two months, all the store managers said, well, now, wait a minute. This guy's charging it to us, and he's doing it, and he's getting all the credit for it. We might as well do that ourselves. <laughs> and after four months, we had no customer complaints that were unresolved. I I'm then instituted a policy of an unconditional money-back guarantee for a Zale, for a Zale product, Zale Diamond product. And if they found a, a better value any place, we'll give you your money back. And that took the scary part of buying a diamond off the table. And it was a, a marketing concept that gave the customer confidence that they could buy from us and know they were getting a good value. Okay, so we talked about con focusing on the customer at the beginning and what you just said. Can you can you go a little deeper on just kind of your thoughts on marketing and how you approach it and why it's important? Because it rings true in the story. I mean, y'all became someone that was a mass. You're providing to the masses. Some of my notes say mass advertising. You just talked about the money back guarantee. Yep. How do you think about marketing? The first thing I think you really have to do is you have to know who your customer is and understand them. And that was a big revelation for me. And it was also a major revelation for the company in that the, the, the concept of marketing was really never one that was embraced by my predecessors. They were really great merchants and they could pick wonderful product and they knew how to make it but that was kind of the end of their their contribution they they really weren't concerned about that because they knew that the product they were making was unparalleled and it was going to get sold but things started to get a little different back in the 70s and 80s and you could just tell that the customer was much they, the customer was much more informed and today, that I mean, it's even light years different than what it was in the 70s and 80s. And so I think that that's number one. You've got to really understand your customer. Take a look at what happened to, to Budweiser beer mm -hmm. just, what, 60 days ago. Mm -hmm. They lost 30% of their business overnight because of some dumbass <laughs> that didn't understand their customer. Yeah. And I mean, it's just crazy. If you don't know who you're selling to and who you want to attract, you can't stay in business. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about, we're going to get to why you'd get into diamonds again in a little bit, but there were, there was your, your dad, his brother, and it sounds like your uncle were co-founders. I kind of want to focus a little, just a bit on family business. Yeah. Probably lots of kids. You became president, eventually became CEO and chairman. 
what's the dynamic, like just what's the lessons learned of, obviously you had lots of cousins that probably was, I don't know, maybe it was an easy solution for you to become that, or maybe it wasn't. What are the dynamics at play that kind of took place as you were kind of growing up in the company that made you the, the, (laughs) (laughs) well, I, I don't know why they selected me. Is that, are you being humble or do you really not know? No, I really don't know okay. why why they selected me because I, I do believe that I was one of the only of our group who probably talked back to them and just didn't roll over and play dead when they told me <laughs> that I had to do something. And, and I was saying to Blake and Robert driving over here that being CEO of a public company where we had 40% that was owned and controlled by our family was the easiest job you could possibly have because you got so much advice, free advice from your family members telling you what to do. And and (laughs) it, it was not easy, but I have to tell you that our family is sensational. And not ever, we didn't get along perfectly all the time. I had major disagreements with several folks in our family, and I used to to have a policy where I would talk in in our meetings and say, look, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about our plan and where we're going, the direction we're going, and I want to hear from everybody, and I want you to have plenty of opportunities to tell me what you like and what you dislike. But once we decide where we're going, I want everybody here to say, I'm behind it, and we're going to make it right. I said, because if we don't make it right, we'll change it. We'll, we'll do something else. I'm, I'm very open to the fact that I've made a mistake, but we're not going to just sit here and do nothing. We're going forward. And I had a lot of problems with that concept with some of the family but just toughed it out and said, we're going to do it anyway. And ultimately, I had a few that, you know, just left because they they didn't like what I was doing. But the interesting thing was when they left, they didn't sell their stock in the company. (laughs) They kept their stock in the company. How do you, so you're managing shareholders, family members, but shareholders, and then you're managing the other public shareholders. Yeah. How are you managing both groups? Because clearly, probably maybe some alignment, but different incentives and wishes. Yeah, you know that that that's a a really challenging concept to work on. And I used to have to tell our patriarchs that look, we own and control forty percent of the company. But somebody else owns 60% of the company, and we've got to think about them as well. And so we're not just thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about sale corporation, total customer, the total ownership. And, and it was a point of contention in many cases, but it was very clear to me that we had to do what was in the best interest of all of our shareholders and not just our family shareholders. Yep. All right, the 80s roll around. We're now let's talk about the other 60% of shareholders because there was yeah. some hostility that started brewing. Yes. 
Let's tell that story. Okay. There was a, a company in Canada. There was a jewelry company that had, it was about, oh, I'd say maybe 25% the size of Zale, Zale Jewelers. And the Canadian banks began making a lot of loans to Canadian companies to do investments in the United States. I don't know if you recall that, but it was, it was pretty prevalent at the time. And this particular company went to, was contacted by their bankers about doing something in, in America. And they borrowed about $30 million, and they started opening stores and buying stores in, in the United States. And we, we were well aware of that, and I looked at their stores and so forth. And they, were, they were just another competitor as far as I was concerned. They were really no major concern or threat. And so they had all this money that was borrowed. And after a couple of years, they figured that they weren't doing real well with the stores and that they would just sell their stores off and pay the banks. And this is the story that was related to me. And so they sold their stores, and the banks told them, well, look, you need to keep your investment in the United States. And they talked about that, and they said, well, we'll, we'll just we'll buy stock in a public company over there, and they picked us. And as soon as they bought the stock, and we, were, we had some really smart investment bankers, and I recall that they called me and said there's some unusual activity in Zale stock, and we talked about that, and they came down to see us and so forth, and we figured out it was this company that was much, much smaller than us. And so we contacted them, point blank, and asked them. They said, well, yes, their bankers had suggested that they buy stock in Zale Corporation and blah, 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 blah. And we weren't, I wasn't real satisfied with that. I knew these people, and the guy that was my somewhat contemporary he was probably 10 years younger than me was there he was their president and ceo i thought he was a pretty arrogant guy but you know i didn't have anything to do with him so it didn't bother me one way or the other and so we ultimately worked out a relationship with them because they owned a pretty good chunk of stock in the company we worked out a relationship with them with a what's called a standstill agreement where they would agree not to buy any more stock in the company because we felt it was in very weak financial hands and that it would be detrimental to all their shareholders if all of a sudden they had to go blow off, you know, $30, 50000000 million worth of stock. So we, we entered into a standstill agreement with them that they would buy no more stock and we would give them three seats on our board of directors. We had 15 people on our board. And so that worked out. And going to a boardroom was like having an elephant in the room. You know, these guys were sitting over in a corner and they were, were not disruptive necessarily, but it wasn't real comfortable having them there. And so... After a year or so of that, well, they started talking to us about junk bonds. They had been doing business with this guy, Michael Milken, who was, I've forgotten the, the name of the firm he was with. But they, he like invented the junk bond. Yeah, he, the guy who, and by the way, he's worth several billion dollars <laughs> today. You know, he went to prison. Yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he went to prison for insider trading or something like that. 
But at any rate, he did invent junk bonds, and that's what they wanted to give us was their junk bonds. Of course, we turned that down very easily. And then this Why did they want to give them to you? Well, they wanted to give us junk bonds, buy the company with them. Oh, I got you. Okay. They said, okay. Well, yeah, we'll just buy the company from you, and we'll give you junk bonds. Well, it's like, <laughs> you know, giving all your birthright for a piece of paper. For some you, turds, yeah, junk yeah, bonds. Yeah, just junk bonds which is a promise to pay later if I can't. Mm -hmm. If I can't, well, you, know, you don't get your money. So anyway, that was very easy for us to turn down and say, no, we're not interested in your junk bonds. And we, by the way, you promised that you're not going to buy any more stock. And so that, that was easy to turn down. And they made more than one offer of junk bonds. And then as time went on, they became partners with Swarovski. This guy who was running Peoples had gone to Wharton School of Finance with a man who was then the, I think he was the CFO of Swarovski. And Swarovski was headquartered in Austria. But they had a lot of money. Swarovski, by the way, their, their big business is reflective glass. And so all these little reflective glass things you see all over the world, on the highways and so forth, and every place you look, is they were, I think they had like 80% of the world market of it. And so they're very, very strong company financially. And they put up 250 million bucks to buy more stock in Zell Corporation. And so now they made us an offer of all cash they went to the banks, and with this $250 million, were able to get a line of credit that was close to a billion bucks. And they came to us, and that was a, a game changer for sure. We had a cash offer, and I went to New York, spent probably three or four weeks trying to figure out whether or not it was the kind of offer that we should take, should we compete with it, and tell our, our because they had offered our shareholders $50 a share, which is about 20 bucks over what it was trading for. And I looked at it and finally determined two things. Number one, I didn't think that they could run the company and that it would not be good for the company. But number two, I didn't see how I could beat the, the offer for the shareholders. And once again, keeping all your shareholders in mind, and you just came to the conclusion that that was the best deal that the shareholders could get. And so we agreed to accept their cash offer, all cash. That was in November, late November 1986. And I, remember, I didn't trust those people as far as you could throw a chimney by the smoke. And uh, I, I, I did not leave Zell Corporation until every check cleared. And I remember sitting at my desk, sending our, 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 one of our lawyers to the bank in New Jersey that the checks were drawn on. And that was in December 1986. And she called me about 10 o'clock in the morning, and she said, Mr. Zell, there is collected funds in the account so that all the checks were clear. And I got up and I left the company and I never went back. 
take a deep breath on that one. What's it like to have a family business that you've watched that you were at seven years old cranking watches and because you're a public company, you don't truly have as much control over the, it's not like a private company where you just say, you're not getting on our cap table. What's that like? Well, it, it's challenging. I remember that long before I was president of the sales, my father was had, had a cousin, a guy by the name of Jake Feldman, who was a scrap metals dealer. And Jake was a, a hardworking guy, and he was a great trader in metals, and his company was not doing well, and he made my father chairman of the board. And my dad would go over there every Saturday, and they would work on stuff at, at commercial, it was commercial metals, which today is a multi-billion dollar company that's very, very strong, very profitable. And he, he would go there every Saturday. And after about a couple of years, well, my dad and my uncle called a little meeting of the top family people. And I was invited to come to the meeting to sit in the corner. I was about, oh, I guess it was 1960, something like that. So I'd been with the company full time about five years, six years. And they said, they thought that we should buy commercial metals. We should merge with them. And they went around the room, and my brother was living in New York, running our New York office, and my cousins, his uncles, and so forth, were living in California. And my uncle, other uncle, was doing stuff in wherever. And they went around the room, and they said, what do you think about this? And, oh, everybody absolutely loved it. I had a cousin who was living in New Orleans. He thought that was a great idea great diversification and it came to me and I said I think it stinks <laughs> I said I don't think that we have any business at all in the scrap metal business because our shareholders didn't buy their stock of in a scrap metal business they bought their and I said that the two businesses just don't mix and that was my first time to really express myself on a major transaction, and the whole thing disappeared right down in there. There no no further discussion about it. And that was probably the first time also that my uncles and my father understood that they had stockholders that they really had to think about. And I guess they listened to me. And I was just a kid when this was going on. But we'd been public for four or five years, three years, whatever. And I, I just had a different perspective than probably the rest of my family. And I had that on several occasions and where I didn't, didn't agree with them and was, was always very upfront with, and, and told them my reasons. And, they listened. I, I was just kind of the reprobate, I guess. I was the, the guy who wasn't going to say, oh, yeah, I think everything you guys are doing is great. <laughs> okay, so when when the, I don't know if we're calling it a hostile takeover. Maybe we yeah, can. Yeah, it was. But the question is, you've been in this business. So you've This is your life. 
and some group from Austria that you probably know of, but don't know. And some Canadian, they start eating up the, they start the, the war. I imagine like they're just marching up the field and at some point there's nothing really to do. They've made the right offer as just a CEO and someone who loves the business. Do you build up resentment? Do you just say this is part of the game and I'm just playing the game and how do you feel well, about that? You feel like crap. Yeah. I mean, you you don't feel good about it at all. But by the same token, you have to be realistic. Yep. And you, you got to be prepared to move on. And it was a, a very difficult process for me because I happened to be the only person who had to sign a covenant not to compete. Mm. And so I was out of the jewelry industry for five years. I couldn't talk to anybody, couldn't make any investments, blah, blah, blah. So I, I was out. And and that was really tough. And I, I had no respect at all for the guys who had bought it in terms of their ability to operate the company. And to the company's credit, they didn't take bankruptcy for five years. But under those guys, I, it was it was predictable. <laughs> And when they, the interesting part about the bankruptcy, when they took bankruptcy, almost five years to the day, I went to the, one of the first creditor committee meetings and I was thinking about putting together a group to buy the company back. And when I walked into the creditors committee with, I think it was the one of, well, one of my relatives, I'm not sure who it was and sat down at the table. They said, we're not doing business with you. And I said, what do you mean? They said, you overcharged those guys. You made them buy that company and pay too much. I said, are you nuts? <laughs> Put a gun to their head and tell them to buy it. They said, they didn't care. They wanted me out. And so, bingo, I was gone. I mean, it was just, and I never did understand that and still don't understand it. But I, I was very cognizant of the fact that they didn't know what they were doing and they were going to ruin the company and they could go bankrupt. Well, that's a because a lot of corporate M&A, that's the, the, the most of these big corporate purchases don't work out. I mean, history shows very few mergers or acquisitions are really accretive and create a lot of value. What was it that you saw in them? Obviously, they gave you the right number. They had an amazing business of in and of their own right, the shiny glass or whatever you call it. But what in the conversations with them did you know they're gonna they're gonna torpedo the company? What made it obvious to you in talking to them? I just know that this guy from Canada, he thought to himself, if those West Texas yokels can run that business and make thirty, forty, fifty million dollars a year. And that guy went to Texas A and M and I went to Wharton. I gotta be a hell of a lot smarter and better than they are. And I can run that business and make double the money they did. And the first thing they did was to eliminate our entire merchandising organization, which that's the death knell right there because and then they they said the policy we will have is that we will do strategic partnerships with our suppliers well that didn't make any sense at all 
And so they fired all of our creative people who were merchandising. They got rid of our vertical integration, saved a lot of money. And the guy who was chairman, I'll, I'll never forget, he called me and he said, come over and see me and so forth. This was about four or five months after they, and he said, you know, we cut $70 million of expenses out of your company. I said, oh, really? <laughs> and he said, yes, sir. He said, you know, that you had all the great locations in these malls all over the country. And we figured that with all the traffic in those malls and everybody else advertising, we didn't need to advertise. So we cut that advertising budget, 55 million bucks. I said, oh, really? <laughs> yes. He says, and then we closed down that whole merchandising company that you had in New York. He said, that was another $12 million. I said, really? So that was 67 million. They picked up 3 million bucks someplace else. <laughs> but that just shows you how stupid they were. <laughs> that, that they cut out all the advertising and they cut out the merchandising, which is the lifeblood of any retailing company. And it was, it was just predictable to me. I mean, they just absolutely had no idea what the hell they were doing. But I got real lucky. Let me, let me tell you what, because this is really important. After the first phone call I got when we announced that we were selling Zale Corporation was from the president of UT Southwestern Medical School. And he was a doctor. And he said, I want you to come over here with, with me. I've got an office for you. And I said, Dr. Sprague, I said, that's really nice of you. And he said, call me Charlie. I said, yes, Dr. Sprague, I'll do that one day. But I, right now you're Dr. Sprague. And so I said, I'll come see you. you know, I said, I got too much to do for right now, but I'll come see you when I get finished over here. And I got all involved with the UT Southwestern. And it was a, an absolute blessing because here I was, 54 years old, the only thing I'd ever done in my whole life was the retail jewelry business primarily. And now I couldn't talk to anybody in the industry. I was out. And here they invited me over as a volunteer. I wouldn't, wouldn't pay it, but as a volunteer to get all involved and help them develop what is now their clinical activity. And I've always said that they did more for me than I ever did for them because I would have gone. I would have gone ballistic just having nothing to do. Yep. I promised Barbara and the kids the, the very first day when I came home from after hearing that the checks would clear, I promised my wife and kids, I said, I'm not going to do anything for one year. I'm going to just look at deals and volunteer doing stuff. I'm not going to sign a lease. I'm not going to buy a business. I'm not going to take a job. None of that. Said, because I've seen too many of my friends who were in YPO with me and so forth oh, yeah. that sold their businesses and thought they were wizards and they went out and invested right away in something else and screwed up their finances and their family and got all screwed up. And I said, I'm going to wait and find something that fits. And having that year of doing something that was really worthwhile doing, I helped them build a hospital, I reorganized their finances and their foundation and all that kind of stuff and met all kinds of new doctors, was really very, very fortunate for me. I kind of want to end on a couple things, but you said 
if I was your age, there's enormous disruption going on in the diamond industry today. Yeah. We can't leave that hanging. Okay. What's going on in the diamond industry that excites you so much? And is this something that's been building for a while or is it recent? In 1960s, General Electric synthesized a diamond. They made a, a, a real diamond of industrial grade out of carbon in 1965 or so. At which caused us to diversify. And that's a whole, another whole story. Mm -hmm. Well, since then, technology has just grown so rapidly that today, laboratory-grown diamonds are within the equal of mine diamonds. And lab laboratory-grown diamonds generally have a cost that is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20% of a mine diamond. Mm. Major, major occurrence. Now, laboratory diamonds today also are identifiable, but you have to have really sophisticated equipment and very knowledgeable people to identify them. And there's a major inventory out there of mine diamonds all over the world. And now you can call up Sammy, who's got a centrifuge over here or something, and mm. he can make you a, a diamond for 15 or 20% of that. And so I just envision having a, a $2,000 diamond and having your wife there and showing now for $2,000, I can give you this two carat diamond. But I can also give you a five-carat diamond, and here they are, and they're identical. Which one would you like to have? Mm. One of my good friends told a friend of mine one time when he was selling him a 12-carat pear-shaped stone for his wife, who looked at it, and she said, it's so big. <laughs> and he said to her, you'd be surprised how they shrink. <laughs> and that's really true. Yeah. They shrink. And so the value of these new laboratory-grown stones is going to be extraordinary, to, in my judgment, to the public. And that's where the big opportunity is going to be. Your family has a ton of adoration and respect for you. You've lived for 90 years. You've seen a lot. You were born in the Great Depression. I'm assuming I'm kind of, you didn't exactly say that, but you were born. 1933. What are some things? I was the only baby in the hospital, my mother said, and they were so poor, I didn't get a middle name. My mother told me. So do you have no middle name right I now? Have no middle name. <laughs> what would it be? Well, maybe we can. I don't know. What, what are some things that you, what are some just tried and true lessons that transcend time that you would leave, that you probably leave to your family, but you can relate it personally, you can relate it professionally, like what matters at the end of the day after all that you've experienced? I think it's, well, let me tell you this. I, I was real fortunate. In 2003, I got an honorary doctorate from Texas A&M. And by the way, the, the, the event kind of gone down is something that is memorable because I was trying to think, I was going to, be at a commencement 
And there were 16,000 of my closest friends who were going to be there and family and students and so forth. And I was trying to think, how do I get everybody's attention? And so I started off my remarks to the students saying that I really didn't deserve this award, but I had a bad case of hemorrhoids and I didn't deserve those either. (laughs) And that's gone down as the hemorrhoid address down at a But I thought real hard about what I could say to those kids. And, and I came up with nine words for a great life. And they are, and I sincerely believe this, that number one, you've got to be proud of yourself. And by that, I mean you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror and and chastise yourself about the way you may be mistreated an employee or a relative or somebody else. So you've got to think really hard about your relationship with people and be proud of how you treat them and and the things that you've done because you are the only person that you you can fool. You can't you can you can't fool yourself. You can fool everybody else. And that's number one. Number two, you have to love your work. I've seen so many people who are miserable all the time, and they come home and they make their family miserable because they don't like what they're doing. They're not in love with it. And I think that you got to love your work. And then number three, I think you've got to give back. And I've seen so, I had an uncle who had an incredible fortune, and he was the family curmudgeon, Uncle Brunke. And Uncle Brunke was, he, he was unhappy his whole life. And he wound up with this incredible fortune, and I helped him give it away. And I never saw him as happy as he was giving away his money. So I think giving back, however you can do that, is really important. And, you know, I, I think number one is your family. I've been blessed. With a great family. Yeah, you know, I lost my wife a little over a year ago. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, sorry about this. That's okay. Yeah. Take a breath. Yeah. But I've lived a charmed life. I really have. I want to end on something that came across because I think it it ties us up perfectly. You're you did lose your wife. You're 90 years old, and there's a rumor. I'm pretty sure this is true, but you still go to public golf courses a couple times a week and go as a onesome so that you can just meet people and play with them. I did that yesterday and played with a fireman from Frisco. Why, after all 90 years where you could probably play golf anywhere you want with whoever you want, do you choose to show up as a onesome and just keep meeting people? I just love people. I really do. This guy yesterday that I played with, I'd say he's probably a third my age, something like that. And the first thing I told him, he's a great big tall guy, African-American. I said, now listen. I'm 90 years old. <laughs> Nobody gives me a stroke. <laughs> I'm talking about not a golf stroke. I'm talking about a real stroke, you know, a stroke <laughs> in the head. And so we 
was. And, and he he was just such a nice guy, and I just enjoyed visiting with him. His wife is a nurse, and blah blah blah, and it it was just fun for me. That's I just, awesome. I just like doing it. Don, this has been just a real treat. Thank you for sharing today. Well, it's been my pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.